Hey kids, trustworthy Kev Smith here. Uh, in light of uh, Hurricane Sandy, there's not much uh, bird story to tell this week. But uh, when things get a bit more back to normal, there'll be some bird. The uh, the devastation that we've seen in the pictures, the images on TV, has not stopped uh, for a lot of New York and New Jersey. So uh, please, uh, if you can, give some money to the Red State, uh, Red State, woo, uh, Red Cross. Um, they're going in their relief effort to, to help out the, the sandy affected areas of New Jersey that are still without power, without water. Um, in New York, uh, there's an organization called Occupy Sandy. They're doing clothes drives and water drives and batteries, pulling stuff together, uh, for the good folks uh, of that, of the New York area. Yeah, in New Jersey, there are various efforts being put together by, uh, Governor Christie. There's a website. I think I saw that, um, uh, his wife, the first lady of New Jersey, um, Mary Pat, I believe her name is, was uh, saying you can donate money to to affect the areas right there in Jersey. So um, if you can donate uh, clothes, old clothes, blankets, batteries, water, bottled water. Um, a lot of people are saying, where, where do you donate it? Uh, don't take it to the police department. Don't take it to the fire department. We've seen a lot of reports of people being turned away with the police department. Fire department have enough to worry about right now. They're like, we're not the closed people. For example, um, in uh, near Highlands, at the top of the hill in Highlands, most of Highlands, New Jersey, is still shut down. But at the top of the hill in Highlands, they're uh, uh, collecting food, and uh, some perishables, but uh, mostly clothing in uh, the old gym up at OLPH, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. So uh, there are lots of places like that collecting uh, materials for the folks who were without. Because remember, uh, if you've seen some of the images, just imagine the ocean swallowing your home and everything you own. You got nothing to wear but the clothes or what are already on your back. So americares.org, uh, salvationarmyusa.org, redcross.org. These are places you can monetarily uh, help out uh, if you're in the or near the affected areas. Uh, they're asking you stay out of, like places like Keensburg are destroyed. Keensburg police are asking people to stay out of Keensburg because there's still a lot of danger, power lines down, uh, dumpsters floating down the street. So uh, you might want to um, uh, find out, call ahead where you can drop off uh, things that you're donating. I saw a story on Facebook a van full of truck stuff, full of people, uh, stuff rather, come up from uh, people who used to live in, in the Highlands area, sent to, collected a bunch of clothing and sent it up in a truck, brought it up in a truck, and were turned away near Keensburg. So uh, make some calls in advance. Uh, you know, the <coughs> road to hell is paved with good intentions. So make sure that uh, they're, they're willing to receive your, your donations. Uh, our hearts and minds are with everybody affected by the flood. Uh, it's a bitch, man. Fuck Sandy. But uh, uh, you will get through it. As a survivor of the Nor'easter of 92, trust me, man, you will get through it. I lost mouths. I lost everything. I lost 20 cats. I lost uh, a shit ton. And uh, it's surprising how quickly you'll be able to put your life back together. Um, so, uh, and now this is going to sound gross, but I still have to let people know about the dates just for this week of me being on the road, uh, Buffalo, New York, man, I'm going to be there November 7th, this very Wednesday doing an evening with Kevin Smith at the UB university of Buffalo, 7 30 PM. It starts the center for the arts, man. Tickets at csmod.com. Um, in November 8th, the very next day, me and Jason Mews are going to Connecticut, Ridgefield, Connecticut. 
excuse me, to perform Jay and Silent Bob Get Old, 7.30 p.m. at the Ridgefield Playhouse. Tickets at csmod.com. November 10th, I'm going to be standing alone once again on a stage uh, at this time in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, at the Peace Center, man. November 10th, uh, 8 p.m., it's Good Evening with Kevin Smith at the Peace Center. And then November 11th, the very next day, it's me and Jason Muse again doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old, this time in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the Fillmore. Tickets for this and all shows, as always, at csmod.com. Uh, me and Ralph will be down this week, no show this weekend, because uh, I'm going to be out there in South Carolina. So we'll be posting the Hollywood Babylon Comic-Con Theater that we recorded uh, last week. So look for that. Other new podcasts this week, brand new Babylon uh, that just happened this weekend. Brand new Smodcast will be up tomorrow. Hoping to get a brand new Bat- Fat Man on Batman up there as well. Uh, again, Keep a little place in your heart for the folks in New York, New Jersey, uh, affected by this flood. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine losing everything. Imagine being absolutely displaced. We'll be holding a Smodco benefit once everything's kind of uh, shaken out, once the, you know, that we're allowed to kind of go back into some of the affected areas and whatnot, once it's a little more appropriate, taste, uh, tasteful. Uh, but meantime, we're doing some monetary, offering monetary help on our side and whatnot. But look for a Smodco benefit down the road. Anyway, I'm sorry. Without further ado, uh, on to some, this week's uh, Smodco podcast. This is Kelly Carland, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
if you're a listener to this program, Waking from the American Dream, you're familiar with that. That is a 21st century song out of Estonia that Chris Doritas, the fabulous, fabulous Los Angeles KCRW DJ, turned me on to uh, when he was on my show. Uh, God, that must have been like six months ago or so. Anyway, everyone, welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Sorry if I sound a little nasal. I'm still dealing with, you know, the phlegm. Still not over this crap. Feeling better, but um, still really logy and just want to sleep all day. I don't know what it is. I think it's because it's five o'clock right now and it's dark. It's kind of freaking my brain out. So it's really warm and cozy here in the studio tonight. I'm all alone. Logan is uh, an extra today on the set of Mad Men. He's playing some sort of hippie freak or something. I don't know what he's playing, but he sent me a cool little photo um, with a funny hat and stuff like that. Uh, he kind of looked kind of conservative for a hippie, but they did told him not to cut his hair. So I'm not quite sure what it's up, what he's doing. Uh, so yeah, I'm all alone here in the studio. I've got the fire going. It's kind of cozy. I'm starting to feel that, um, the seasons are changing. Absolutely changing. Well, wow. What a week it's been. Um, as you know, uh, there was an election. <laughs> and if you don't know that, I, I do not know where you are from. Uh, and I wrote a little thing about it. But before I get to that, um, I just wanted to just uh, bring up a couple of cool things here. Uh, one of which is um, my show waking from oh no, not this show, my show, a Carlin Home Companion. Uh, I'm really excited. I was sick last month, and I had to cancel my performance. So I'm excited. I'm back on stage. Uh, next Thursday in Santa Monica at the Santa Monica Playhouse. And um, uh, I was doing lines today in my car while I drive. And uh, it's really amazing how they just never go away. Like once you do this stuff, there's, you know, 90 minutes worth of words in your head. And you think, oh, I'll never remember it. And then you just like start up somewhere and just go forward. And, and there you go. So um, I was really excited that that was the reality today, <laughs> that I hadn't lost my memory, even though I hadn't done this. God, I think it's been about six or seven weeks since I did my show, which is the longest time really in between things. Um, and uh, what else is going on? Oh, I'm really excited. Also, I just got invited to be on The Point next week. Now they're taping on Tuesday. I don't know what day it'll be on. But if you don't know, there's a show on the Young Turks channel on YouTube. And, uh, you know, the Young Tur Turks is, uh, Yank, 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 Yungar, spelled C-E-N-K, but you say it Yank. Uh, and I think John Fugelsang is hosting a Thanksgiving show. So, uh, gee, maybe it's for the following week. But I'm excited I'm going to tape that next week. Uh, oh, yeah. And next week there will not be a live show because I will be doing my, uh, stage show next Thursday. And I can't do both shows in one day because, I don't have the brain power for that. I don't know if anyone does. I mean, if you do, God bless you. You've got way big more resources than I do inside of me. Uh, and then the following week will be Thanksgiving. So this will be our last um, show for quite a few weeks. But the exciting thing is, <laughs> I'm so excited about this. On November 29th, for a half hour, I will have a half hour interview with one of my biggest heroes on planet Earth, Anne Lamott. Oh my God, I have been reading her books for 20 years. She is my writing mentor. She is my kind of uh, faith, political, laugh itself mentor. 
and um, it's it's really uh, quite quite exciting, very very exciting. So uh, I can't even believe it's going to happen. Can't even believe it's going to happen, but it is. So um, I am really just like. Uh, She's got a new book out, you know, and I, I I went to the publisher. I mean, here's here's how you do this stuff. I went to the publisher like six months ago when she had another new book out. I'm like, hi, I have a podcast. I'd love to talk to Anne Lamott. Got a little bit of a response, but uh, she's too busy or whatever. And then out of the blue, got an email like three weeks ago. Hi, I remember you were interested in talking to Anne. Well, she's got a new book out. Would you like to talk to her? Um, Yeah, duh. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, and, uh, so that's going to be the 29th. I'll have a half hour with Anne Lamott. I don't know what else we'll do. Um, who knows? Uh, who cares? <laughs> um, so anyway, I wanted to read a little piece that I wrote for today. I'm kind of getting into, I can't promise it's going to happen every show, but I'm kind of getting into writing little essays for the show here to start the show. Um, and, and enjoyed doing it last week with my round table. So, um, so here's what I wrote this week. On Tuesday, I was very scared. I was scared that the world was going to take a step in a very dark direction and consecrate once again the very things I have spent most of my life fighting against. Misogyny, racism, oppression of gays, and the cultural hegemony of privileged white males that have ruled this nation for more than 200 years. I was raised to believe in others' innate goodness and to help those with less to rise up so that they too could all walk on a level playing field. I was taught that there is nothing wrong with succeeding and getting rich and being able to follow your dreams as long as in doing so, you always helped others to rise with you and walk by your side. I was taught to stand up against those who favor money and property over humans and the earth. But a few years ago, I began to seriously lose faith in those teachings because it felt like there were too many forces against them. I lost faith in myself. I was starting to think that even my own needs for comfort and security were defeating my own desires to ease the suffering of others and share in the spoils of my efforts. I lost faith in my fellow Americans. I felt that greed and the blatant disregard for the future of this planet was being championed by people who had just way too many resources and energy and that it was a done deal. I lost faith in humanity. I no longer could see how we were going to be able to balance our innate greed and unbalanced ego-driven individualism with charity and compassion in a world with overpopulation and dwindling resources. And so I lost all hope and faith. But like I said last week in my remarks entitled Above the Fray, ultimately, I decided to take a stand again because I did not want to end up like Martin Mueller or new Miller and have to say that I did not stand up for what was wrong until it was too late. And I'm glad I did. Look, look, I know, I know life is not perfect because Obama was reelected and that one fifth of the Senate is now female and that gay marriage and legalized legalizing weed passed in three States and that people like Aiken and Mort and Murdoch were booted out. I know that we have tons of work to do and need to roll up our sleeves and work on stopping the use of drones, dismantling the huge amount of executive power amassed through the Patriot Act and NDAA, punishing those on Wall Street for, thy di for their digressions, ceasing the war on drugs, recreating our penal system, overturning Citizens United and championing science and lifting the silence surrounding climate change. 
I know all of that. I'm not naive. I am not stupid. But I am relieved and proud that this country and the changes that had been fought for by many, many people in the civil rights movement and the ecology movement of the 60s is becoming mainstream. People of color, women, scientists, community organizers, peace activists, consciousness raisers, human potentiators have a louder and louder voice in this country today. And I am proud to be one of them. I know it is still a really, really fucked up world. But this week, in some small way, I feel that we righted our course as a people and a planet. We didn't take the easy way out and succumb to greed and selfishness. We went out and reached out to others and said those hokey words, yes, I can. Yes, we can. It takes a lot of courage to stay in faith. That's the nature of faith. It is a precarious and vulnerable act. There is no for sures or known outcomes. There is no promise that our hearts and bodies will not be broken. Faith and hope keep our hearts open and connected to the suffering around us. Lack of faith and hope may keep us safe and sound to never be discouraged or heartbroken, but they also can keep us disconnected and feeling alone. I remember being a kid and people like my dad would raise a fist and say to each other, keep the faith. I always felt proud that we were like the French resistance living on the edges of society, having to keep the faith that someday the world would see the same things in the same way that we did. Keep the faith. My dad taught me a lot about the world back in those days, how to walk through it, how to treat others, how to think differently, and who to listen to. He also taught me these most important words. These words are by... Martin Luther King. He said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It bends towards justice. But here is the thing it does not bend on its own. It bends because each of us, in our own ways, put our hand on that arc and we bend it in the direction of justice. Keep the faith. Gracias a la vida Me ha dado tanto Me dio dos luceros Que cuando los abro Perfecto distingo Lo negro del blanco Y en el alto cielo Su fondo estrellado las multitudes el hombre que yo amo gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me ha dado el sonido con las palabras que pienso y declaro madre amigo hermano y luz alumbrando la ruta del alma del que estoy amando 
Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado la marcha de mis pies cansados, con ellos anduve ciudades y charcos, playas y desiertos, montañas y llanos. Y la casa tuya, tu calle y tu patio. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto. El corazón que agita su marco cuando miro el fruto del cerebro humano, cuando miro el bueno tan lejos del malo, cuando miro el fondo de tus ojos claro gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me ha dado la risa y me ha dado el llanto así yo distingo quebrando los dos materiales que forman mi canto y el canto de ustedes que es el mismo canto el canto de todos que es mi propio That was uh, Mercedes Sosa singing, um, oh God, why am I spacing out? Uh, Gracias a la vida. Uh, go ahead and Google her and her story and the lyrics to that song. This uh, was a, a live recording done when she returned to her country of Chile after being exiled for decades. And this was her first public performance uh, singing about um, how thankful she was for life. It's, it, it'll just bring tears to your eyes reading the whole story. So that was Mercedes Sosa. So I'm excited. I have uh, my guest on hold here for a second. Uh, my guest is Howard Bloom. He's coming back again. We only spoke about four or five weeks ago, but uh, there's so much juicy stuff to talk to him about that uh, I wanted to have him back on uh, pretty 
pretty right away. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Howard, Howard is he kind of comes to the world from like cosmology and theoretical physics and microbiology. He likes to call his particular field mass behavior. Uh, but he isn't just a scientist. He's a man who also worked in the world of pu- public relations uh, and did an amazing job. I mean, worked in the music industry and worked with a bunch of um, corporations and and really understands human behavior and has an incredible mind. He has uh, so many books he's written, uh, a couple of which I've read, The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History. Um, another one that I've read is The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism, one I highly, highly recommend if you want to understand where we could be going in the next 100 years uh, with capitalism, even the next 20 years. And, and now he's just recently released his newest book, The God Problem, How a Godless Cosmos Creates. And uh, I was noticing uh, he was on Twitter today, uh, you know, um, talking about how he's going to be on the show to hear. And then he also he tweeted this really, really interesting quote. And so I'm going to read this quote, and then Howard and I can talk about it. And the quote is, an accelerating balance uses the struggle between opposites as a power source to move forward, to take new big leaps. In the Western system, the opposites are government, entrepreneurs, corporations, and the protest industry. What does their struggle produce? Progress. And what does progress produce? Secular salvation. New powers for humankind. Howard and I are going to unpack that statement right now. Welcome, Howard, to the show. Thanks, Cal. You always make me smile. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> well, that's good. We're even then because you certainly make me smile. So wh- what um, what led you to put that quote up on Twitter today? Um, there is There are five heresies in the God problem in the new book. And the third heresy is that the second law of thermodynamics, the most sacred rule in science, um, is the rule of entropy, that all things fall apart, that all things tend toward disorder. And Kelly, that rule, no matter how basic it's been over the last 150 years, is wrong, 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 wrong. Things in this universe do not fall down, they fall up. They do not fall apart, they fall together. Yes, they fall apart temporarily, but then they bind together in whole new ways. And as a consequence, this cosmos is constantly leaping upward. That's one of the messages in The God Problem, and it relates directly to a message in The Genius of the Beast, which is about that balance, between that, that uh, accelerating balance um, between government, the protest industry, and private initiative. I, I had put up a post on something vaguely political, not so vaguely political, yesterday, and a bunch of my uh, followers, um, you know, I have this little faithful band of 5,000, mm-hmm. and a, a bunch of them made statements that, oh, we've got to get rid of government. We have to slim down government. Um, government is taking up too much of our resources. Um, well, that's the argument that was made by the Republican Party during the course of the election. And the fact is, they're dead wrong. The Republican Party was citing. Um, entrepreneurs to demonstrate so entrepreneurs do it on their own they do not rely on any resources provided by the greater society or by government or by infrastructure they are self-sufficient and they were using examples like um, Zuckerman um, with Facebook and um, Google and um, uh, Amazon.com well guess what Kelly 
None of those businesses would exist if it weren't for a little government project initiated by the Defense Advanced Research Projects, um, uh, whatever it's called, DARPA administration, mm-hmm. called the Internet. <laughs> <Yes>. The Internet <laughs> was, pro- was provided to us by government, and that is the role of government. It's to provide these infrastructures that break all the previous rules, that make impossible things possible. And then the entrepreneurs go out and scout the possibilities and bring them into reality. But without that base to stand on, entrepreneurs have nowhere to go. And we need new places to go desperately in this country. We need to maintain our lead. Asia Times today is comparing um, the American presidential election with Chinese transition that's occurring now. And they're both occurring at the same time. And the general conclusion is that somewhere in Obama's next four years, China is going to become a great power on a par with the United States. Now, how in the world are we going to handle that? We can handle it. There's only really one way to handle it, and that is to establish the economy of the last half of the 22nd century, to establish the economy of 20 to 30 years from now, to be creative, to be anti-entropic, not to let things apart to make things happen in startling and brand new ways. And to do that, you need infrastructure changes. You do need things like high-speed rail so that people from L.A. can get to San Diego without being caught in a traffic jam that lasts six hours. Mm. I've been caught in those traffic jams, Kelly. (laughs) I have never been able to drive a car from L.A. to San Diego. I've always had to turn back after being immured in traffic like a, a pebble in concrete. Um, for five or six hours. Well, high-speed rail would take care of that problem. Um, What we really need is ubiquitous Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi absolutely everywhere, on tap, on demand, and at speeds twice or three times the speeds they now have in South Korea, where they are much faster with their Wi-Fi than we are. Um, A couple of years ago, I I was on a panel with Peter Norvig, from, who's the head of research and development for Google, and Rabagavan Pravavar, um, whose name I can never pronounce, but who is the head of research and development for Yahoo and with an evangelist for Microsoft. And we were speaking to an audience of venture capitalists. It was about 300 people, all of them venture capitalists and all of them makers, entrepreneurs, makers of the most wonderful new technologies you've ever seen. And there was one big false assumption in the room. The God problem is about finding assumptions other people don't see and bring to the surface we can question them. Well, the big assumption was that we all have continuous access to Wi-Fi. These people are not living in the real world. Mm. Their technologies and their investments are all based on you and me having access to Wi-Fi wherever we go. Well, in my world, my Wi-Fi is sometimes there and sometimes not. And when I travel, it's hard to get it. Um, that's, so we need, um, among other things, um, ver- blinding high-speed Wi-Fi, and we need to, to imagine our to the next level, to things that go beyond things like the Internet. What's going to be the next great thing beyond the Internet? You know what the Internet did? Americans have been a people of frontiers, and we had this great frontier that we've stepped into exuberantly from roughly 1780 until 1880, and then the frontier was closed. But we're frontier explorers, and the Internet opened a vast new frontier of a kind of real estate that we'd never conceived before, a kind of landscape we'd never conceived before, virtual reality, cyberspace. 
And cyberspace has made fortunes for people and has utterly changed your life and mine. It's enabling the conversation we're having at this very moment while we need to find the next builder of new landscapes in impossible territories that we do not yet dream of. Well, and, and, that's, the, and that's a role for government yeah, and, and, and private industry. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and a couple of things here, one of which is the importance of understanding that, you know, all of these um, positions within our society, whether it's entrepreneurs or corporations or the protest industry, which I, I just love that term, protest industry, because I feel like I'm a part of that, and and, gov- and, and government, and uh, exactly, and that that it takes the tension of all of these opposites, that it takes friction and tension within a system to to create something and to take it to the next level to 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 help it uh you know to to understand that without you know that if everything was if we all voted one way there would be such a, a sense of of non-movement i mean i think of stalinist you know ussr i mean you know unless you know the government was telling you what to do there was so little innovation nobody gave a shit people were starving there was no hope there was no dreams and and it's like we need this tension and the thing that excited me about the possibility of the future and, and you know is that the republican party will start to i mean someone wrote a great letter today a liberals letter to the republican party saying you know uh, that you know, I want the future to be strong for you, and I want the intellectuals and the and the people who could think well in your party to come back because you create the right tension within this democratic process for us to bounce ideas off of each other. But if you're obsessed with, you know, women's vaginas and gay marriage, there's not going to be a lot of innovation going on because there's not any real conversation going on anymore. And and I think that's partly what I'm excited about also, because I think possibly I'm hoping some people in the Republican Party are starting to figure out that it's time to come back around to the real conversation again. It's very hard to tell what's going on in the Republican Party. The press in the last 24 hours since the election has been grabbing at straws. For example, John Boehner uh, said that um, Obamacare, um, it's terrible phrase, but Obamacare is the law of the land. Well, that became headline material um, for Reuters. But the fact is, when you read the article, it turns out that Boehner is just as adamant about stonewalling Obamacare or uh, national health, whatever you call it, Uh um, as, as, as ever. And it begins to look as if we, we don't know. Yeah, Uh, we don't know. It's too early. Yeah, right. If you've watched CNN and if you've watched the panels that they set up, with two Republicans and two Democrats, the Republicans on CNN are rethinking their position mm-hmm. under your very eyes. Um, Karl Rove, who is uh, <laughs> the evil genius of the Republican Party, who has successfully manipulated so many elections that it's ridiculous, and was waiting for a close election before the vote was called in Florida, so that uh, presumably... This is not an absolute statement. This is a hypothesis. But presumably, so that in that Republican state, um, controlled by a Bush, um, he could manipulate the vote to take um, Mitt Romney uh, past the margin of victory. Uh, But that didn't work. Um, The the margin of victory for Obama was too large. Uh, In the beginning, in the first hours, it looked as if Obama was going to lose once the vote started coming in. And then the 
um, actual plurality, the actual number of voters voting for Obama began to overtake the bet of Romney, and now it's at about 800,000, almost a million um, beyond Romney. But um, it's very hard to tell whether the Republicans are going to be free to start thinking again and stop the culture war against the 1960s yeah. that they have been engaged in since the 1970s. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and I know it's, it's, it's interesting because that's kind of what my opening essay was about was that, you know, I felt that a, a good portion of America uh, voted in the direction of, of the future and actually voted in the direction of what had been started in the 60s, uh, you know, changes and civil rights and, and thinking about ecology and, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, a lot and of letting people smoke pot if they want. To. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't smoke it. But, and it's taken me a long time to realize that the costs in, in political prisoners, if you call them that, yep. who've been arrested, well, that's costing the society huge amounts. It's costing many people, for all practical purposes, their lives. Because once you've been in jail, how in the world do you establish a career yep. um, in, in any field whatsoever? It's ridiculous. It's one social class drinking its way to oblivion. And alcohol is poison, mm-hmm. um, saying that another class can't have its recreational <laughs> drug. Exactly, it's a subculture war, <laughs> and it's time to end it. It's cost. It's just cost too many tens of billions of dollars and too many lives. Yeah, and that's a sign you began to see. Um, in this new election, it was interesting to watch the vote of people under the age of 35, mm-hmm. because they're t- even Republicans under the age of 35 seem to be tolerant of things like gay marriage, yep. um, seem to be tolerant of things like pot smoking. Um, and, and in there lies hope. But the essay that you're citing that said it's time for Republicans to think and add to the national conversation again, mm-hmm. it's not only time for them to add to the national conversation, it's time to get rid of a couple of cliches. On the, right, on the left, on our side, we have to get rid of this entropic cliche that everything in our society is bad, that buying something is consumerism. Yes. Kelly, there is nothing consumerist in the negative sense about my sitting here with a laptop on my lap and having a cell phone by my side and watching a 22-inch computer monitor flash the photos that I take on my tiny little Sony camera. Those are all brand new human empowerments, and we should be rejoicing in them. Calling them a nasty name like consumerism? Fuck that, if you'll excuse my language. <laughs> that, that just is, is crazy. Um, a society that denies its gifts is not capable of delivering new ones, or at least is hobbled in its ability to create new ones. Look, since 1850, we've doubled the human lifespan in Western civilization under this balance between capitalism, the protest industry, and government. Since 1850, we've made the poorest paid worker in London, we've given her the, the weekly salary of an entire tenement full of the poorest paid workers in London in 1850. The things we've achieved, you can walk down the street and talk to Beijing. Do you think somebody in 1850 could do that? Not on, not on your life. Do you think you could have done it in, in 1970 or 1980? Absolutely not, unless you were extraordinarily wealthy. Mm. And today, a person without a cell phone, look, Africa is being radically changed right under our nose because the poorest Africans have got cell phones. Yeah. Now, once upon a time, they went through a previous techno-revolution of this kind when they all got transistor radios. But it's the cell phone that's dramatically changing the quality of African lives. 
we need to recognize these triumphs and we need to celebrate them and we need to say to ourselves it is our job to bring the new ones um, and some of that will come from a government infrastructure and some of that will come from individual initiative let's get started Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the things I loved about Genius of the Beast was your ability to reframe the conversation around capitalism and to to talk about it not in these terms that, you know, a a lot of people on the left, you know, became comfortable with that, you know, that all, all corporations are evil and all capitalism is wrong. And it's just, you know, about greed and selfishness, that actually, there are these two forces between the I, the individual and, and, and the, the energy that drives that person's vision and, and need to achieve, and versus the common and the, and the communal, and that they're both important uh, tensions here, and that you can have both and you can have a capitalism that um, helps to, you know, uh, make the whole society a more a more prosperous one so that everyone is lifted up. I mean, that's another thing I, I mentioned in my thing that my dad taught me that there's nothing wrong with being successful and being rich, you know, and, but you know, your job is, is that when you become these things is to make sure that you're helping to lift the people around you, you know, and giving them yes. opportunities. Um, Which your dad did. I mean, your dad lifted us by giving us new thought tools. Exactly. And, and that's why he is a classic in, in the same way that Will Rogers um, became a classic. And we still think of him and quote him today. And, and Kelly, how much does it cost your, did it cost your dad to come up with, uh, in money, to come up with those brilliant ideas of his, with those brilliant outside-the-box ways of looking at things that we all do every day? Right. Um, it was not a monetary thing. He was working in a landscape of virtual realities. And virtual realities are a source of abundance beyond belief there's another thing and that's and listed in everything you've been saying to motivate people you call on them to struggle to motivate people you call on them to fight the remarkable thing about western society today versus western society in 1650 is that when you called on western people in 1650 to struggle and to fight it meant killing people mm-hmm. when you call on people today to struggle and to fight it's a creative process mm-hmm. in which even those who lose gain yeah yeah, that's 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 a that's a great reframe. Yeah, and and I think that there's some thinking that needs to catch up with that. That it is, um, you know, that that getting into the you know any kind of creative work, it when you know whether you're going to write a book or uh, write some music or or or, or invent a new uh, you know doohickey. Um, there's there is a there's a sense of chaos in that process. There's a there's a sense of battle. You know, you have to kind of get yourself ready for it and you feel like you're, you know, you're, you're trying to shape something out of chaos and, and trying to form it. And it's, there's a lot of work involved and, and then to bring it out into the marketplace, you know, I mean, you have to be willing to, to stand it up against other ideas, other doohickeys, other songs, other books and, and all of that competition. I mean, that's one of the things you talk about in, in, um, the God problem is, is the importance of comp, the, the, the metaphor of competition in the universe and the importance of it. And, and I just, I love that framing of it that there's that, that, you know, that there's hierarchy and there's attraction and there's competition and it's all needed in order for just atoms to get organized into matter and then into life forms even, you know, I mean, we can go all the way back to, you know, the hydrogen atom. <laughs> well, we need, we need a radical rethink in the eco community because the eco community thinks it knows what nature is and it thinks that we have to live by being in tune with nature. And frankly, the eco community is totally deceived 
about what nature is. Nature is engaged in struggle. Nature is is constant change. Nature is constant change in nibble, in little bites and little steps, leading eventually to giant, unbelievable, super shocking, super surprising changes. And if we want to live in tune with nature, our task is not to stabilize the earth and make it the way that it was 11,000 years ago when the ice age ended and everything thawed and the world momentarily became a paradise because nature doesn't want to go backwards. Nature is constantly going forwards. And if you read, this may sound like I'm anthropomorphizing the universe, but if you read The God Problem, you'll see that this is the way the universe operates, and it operated long before there were human beings. So if you want to be an agent of nature, if you want to be in tune with nature, your job is to conquer change like climatic change, which has always occurred on this planet. Sometimes there were 200 times as much carbon dioxide as there is today on this planet without smokestacks, without automobiles. Um, We have had great ice ages. We have had global warmings. We've had something like 20 of them in which um, the temperature went up 18 degrees in 10 years or less. That's nature doing her thing. And our job is to learn how to ride nature's change the way that surfers ride a constantly changing wave. And our job is to transcend it. I mean, we've done that by building cities, though. Kelly, let's be honest. We are not the ones who invented cities. Um, Termites have cities. (laughs) Ants have cities. Cities are something that we all stumble across if we're social creatures and if we're good at re-sculpting our environment. But it's our job to take things to the realm of the unimaginable. Why? Because, again, if you read The God Problem and the story of the history of the cosmos in here, you'll realize that the universe is all about, I'm going to use horrible language, she fucks herself over and over again. (laughs) She trumps, she breaks her own rules. She sets up rules, and then she... She encourages those creatures or those inanimate things that manage to break the rules and remake them completely. So want to be in tune with nature? Your job is radical, absolutely transformative change. So so one of the challenges for humans on this earth right now um, is to, uh, you know, I mean, whether, you know, and so what I'm hearing you saying is that, you know, whether humans are adding to the carbon right now and the global warming, it's happening, it's happened before, but there's something about some sort of innovation, some sort of grand thinking and some sort of uh, leap that needs to be made in order to, to understand that there's a lot of bodies on this planet. There's a lot of uh, technology. There's a lot of power we need and, and we need to make the next leap into, you know, what that possibly could look like to sustain all of this and to sustain, to, to sustain all of us uh, with the planet, right, you know, in the next 100, 200, 500 years. What forms have traditionally done is they have spewed forth uh, toxic, and to- toxic stuff, poisons, and then they have to turn those poisons into fuel sources. I mean, it happened a long time ago. Uh, one or two billion years ago, uh, in the beginning of life, life was all bacteria, including an awful lot of cyanobacteria, these green-blue bacteria that, that do photosynthesis. And they were scooping up uh, um, a toxic poison called light, and they were turning it into life stuff. And, but, and, and they were brilliant at it. They were brilliant at just taking water and light and a few other trace elements and turning it into biomass. Um, into huge colonies with 7 trillion bacteria all communicating with each other. But they, there were things that they could not process in, in their food sources, and they farted those out. 
they farted out toxic pollutants. Now look, what's the size of a bacteria compared to the atmosphere of an entire planet? Bacteria, you can't even see bacteria. <laughs> They're so small. So obviously, bacterial, bacterial farts are never going to amount to anything, right? They're never going to have a big impact on the nature of reality. Well, guess what? After two billion years of this, um, the stuff that the bacteria could not digest um, saturated the atmosphere, and it was poisonous. It was poisonous to bacteria. Um, so bacteria went through this radical change. They did a form of uh, uh, socialization they had never done before, social organization they'd never done before. Large bacteria took back small bacteria into their systems and turned them into what we now call organelles, things like mitochondria, and used those small bacteria to take this poison, Kelly, and turn it into pleasure, to take this poison and turn it into food, fuel, and energy. Mm. Do you know what the poison was called? Oxygen? You're absolutely right. <laughs> and today we don't. So that's our job with carbon dioxide. But yes. beyond that, in the same way that eventually those creatures that initially lived only in the sea um, started to enter this absolutely barren, hostile landscape that seemingly had nothing to offer called the land, we have to get eight and a half minutes beyond, be above our head to uh, the land where gravity no longer affects us. Um, to to the ter to territories where you know life is aching to get its hands on new resources and up there um, there are these giant snowballs uh, called comets and snowballs raw material for food and all kinds of stuff. Um, there are um, planet there are places like Moon that are just filled with the raw materials for stealing concrete. Um, and there's empty space where we can build giant cans of steel and glass that can house 30 or 40,000 people and have parks and farms and all kinds of stuff. We can make our own real estate up there. And in the process, we'll be doing something that nature absolutely demands. Nature has been demanding that her creatures, her living creatures, defy one of her most basic laws, the law of gravity, for a long time. When two lobsters go up against each other in the sea, they have a head-bobbing contest to see who can get his head up the highest. And he who breaks gravity, the law of gravity the most, wins. Um, in lizards, the same thing happens. They go into head-bobbing contests, and he who can get his head up the highest wins. In other words, he who can break the law of gravity most successfully wins. Once upon a time, there were a bunch of loony dinosaurs. And I'm going to put this in anthropomorphic terms, but this really did happen in biological terms. The loony dinosaurs took, took a look above their head and decided they might want to go up there. And more conservative dinosaurs, if you and I had been among them, we would have said, what? You want to go up there in the sky? Look at the, the sky. What are you going to do? Eat clouds? You're going to eat stars at night? Those things are insubstantial. Look, Mother Nature is down here, and she gives you everything good that you need. She gives you greenery. She gives you food to eat. She gives you shelter. You're going to defy Mother Nature and break her laws of gravity to do what? To go nowhere where there is nothing, no thing at all. Well, the loony dinosaurs did it. They took to the sky. And um, it's now roughly 120 million years later. How many of the conservative dinosaurs who stayed land animals 
have you seen walking down a street somewhere in your neighborhood today? <laughs> I've not seen any walking recently, no. Yes, and how many of those dinosaurs how many of those dinosaurs that took to the sky have you seen walking a block in your neighborhood today? Uh, You've seen tons of them. Yeah, they're called they're birds. Called birds. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And here's another, here's another way that Mother Nature hints that she wants us to break her law of gravity big time, and she wants us to take life to the skies. There are twice as many species of birds as there are of land-walking mammals. That means there are twice as many ways of making a living in this emptiness without food that we call the sky. Now, if birds can do it, what can we do bird that birds can't? We can break that eight-and-a-half-minute barrier and go above our head into space. Birds cannot do that. Is life aching to achieve that? Is life aching to terraform new landscapes, to biomass new landscapes, to garden new landscapes, to green a cosmos? You bet. <laughs> But, uh, but I have two visceral reactions to that, one of which is, are you telling me that I should get over my sentiment sentimentality about Earth? <laughs> no, not at all. But what, you know, our, in all of the artwork that's done on space, Chesley Bonnestell's illustrations in 1948 to 1955, they motivated me like crazy. They, they, they were behind our space program. But they're all visions of this black, empty space. And uh, astronauts are all people who have no personality. Why? Because they're hidden behind an anonymous suit. All the suits are alike. They're hidden behind a visor. You can't even see their face. That ain't the space of the future, Kelly. That's the space of the past. Mm. Because in the future, we are going to garden the universe. We are going to take ecosystems to space. We are going to have parks and, and vast landscapes of greenery up there. We are going to be able to take our dogs for a walk. But when we take our dogs for a walk in the park, if we climb a hill, we can fly. Hmm. Why? Because we'll be in this rotating tin can that makes artificial gravity. Hills move toward the center of the tin can. And the closer you get to the center, the less gravity there is. Plus, plants and animals will have opportunities to thrive in brand new environments. And they will change. They will change dramatically. That's what they've done ever since the first very courageous life forms did something utterly crazy and went from the, from the bosom of the sea, which nurtured them and cared for them, to the hostile landscape of the land. Mm -hmm. The same way that millions of new creatures have evolved yeah. by taking the challenge of the land. Millions of new creatures will evolve by taking on the challenge of space. Now, do you think that we are, that evolution, the act of evolution, biological evolution, uh, is speeding up, that there is some sort of ramping up? You know, because I, I, I mean, I read a lot of... Andrew Cohen and Ken Wilber and people like that and, you know, talk about the evolution of consciousness and, you know, Teilhard right. de Chardin and Gene Houston and all those great thinkers. And I'm fascinated by that idea that, you know, that if we, um, oh, did I lose you? I'm oh, going to call Howard back. Shoot. Okay. I'm going to go to just a little bit of a music here and then we'll get Howard back. Howard back right now. 
Ah, oh, there you well, are. For some reason, yeah. I, went, I went offline for a second. Anyway, I, I was talking about evolution and uh, how I'm fascinated there. with this concept of uh, uh, the, the evolution of consciousness and that, you know, the more that we become conscious of that we are evolutionary creatures and that we can shape and actually uh, participate in a conscious way in evolution. Is, is that what you're talking about here? It's a great deal of what I'm talking about because, look, we are the first protons have been around this cosmos for 13.72 billion years. And they've been through every smash, bash, catastrophe, star formation, star, die, star death that you can imagine. But you and I are huge piles of protons. And we are the first form that protons have ever taken, the first social initiative that protons have ever undertaken that is able to dream and is able to fantasize and then over the course of many generations is able to many generations of persistence from one generation to the next is able to make multi-generational projects come true and is able to make dreams into realities however we're not the fastest evolutionaries on the planet the fastest evolutionaries on the planet are our foremothers, the bacteria, who were mm. here three and a half billion years ago, because they do research and development at rates you've never imagined, which is <laughs> why we are, well, look, they're right now, we are um, pretending that we don't, we've run out of resources. This is ridiculous. For every ounce of biomass on this planet, and I'm talking about every form of biomass from grass and elephants, you and me, for every ounce, there are 220 million ounces of dead stuff waiting to be turned into life stuff. Hmm. Now, we don't seem to know that. We are, you know, we think we've raped the planet and it's all over and we've hit their carrying capacity. And that's crazy. Bacteria know better. Two miles below our feet, there are bacteria taking granite and turning it into food. The same way that bacteria one to two billion years ago took that poison, oxygen, and turned it into food. If they have such clever imaginations, why are we so stupid? We yeah. think we're the ones with the brains. Well, I, and I, you know, that that, that points to that uh, the aspect that you talk about in the God problem, the importance of repetition, and how repetition uh, really is a, an enormous part of the evolutionary process. And uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit and, and describe to my listeners about. Um, the difference between how there was a lot of equations going on in science and everything was kind of thought through in, in equations. And then people started using computers and, uh, to, to move through ideas and that the whole, the whole idea of fractals and cellular automata. I, I mean, this is fascinating to me because this, you know, this reminds me of like, you know, like the next level of evolution could be happening inside of these computers with these amazing brains of humans shaping, you know, what the conversation is inside the computers and then letting these computers go off. And I mean, it sounds scary, too, but do the repetition to to find, you know, what is the next emerging property for us? Well, math has always been this business uh, in which repetition counts a lot more than anybody's been willing to confess. And if you go back to Babylonian cuneiform tablets and to the, the Egyptian books on math, um, they, the number of steps, tiny little steps that you have to repeat, 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 repeat in order to arrive at a conclusion about something is amazing. And if you, there's one Babylonian home that was, it was an old school and it was turned into a house. 
And Babylonian kids would do homework assignment after homework assignment after homework assignment. A lot of those homework assignments on mathematics. And they would get so many of them wrong that even though there was a disposal, and they would do all this on little clay tablets the size of your iPhone. And there was a, a reprocessing facility in there so that once a clay tablet was full, you could reprocess it and give it a blank slate and start all over again. Still, despite all the reprocessing, there were something like 70,000 of these tablets around and the people who took the place over and turned it into a home guess what they made their furniture and their roof out of <laughs> um, these clay tablets and those clay tablets show you just how many repetitions I mean remember your own learning of arithmetic during your first from the time you were in first grade to the time you were in eighth grade agonizing repetition well computers can do repetition lickety split computers can do more repetition than all the functions in human history in one second and there's a vast change that's uh, about to take place, and nobody seems to recognize, but you're right, it is in the God problem. Uh, if you sit down with a, uh, an august um, theoretical physicist like Stephen Weinberg, he will tell you the universe's equations. Well, you look at him a little strangely, and you think, surely he means the universe is understandable through the tool of equations. Mm -hmm. So you question him about it, and no, that's not what he means at all. He means literally the universe is made of equations. If you read one of Brian Greene's books, you'll find quotes that say exactly the same thing. The universe is made of equations. Well, guess what? There are these guys called Kepler and Galileo. Were they doing science? I mean, would you think Kepler and Galileo were doing legitimate science, Kelly? <laughs> yes. I mean, these guys, these guys created science. Yeah. They never heard of an equation. They didn't work with equations. They worked with pictures. They worked with a form of pictures. They solved problems with a form of pictures we call geometry. And then science got really abstruse, you know, off the wall, way out there in outer space. Um, with a new form of mathematics, equations, in the days of uh, Sir Isaac Newton. and But equations, it's only been mired in equations for 350 years. And those equations have enormous limitations. And those enormous limitations were spotted by, of all people, John Stuart Mill and a friend of his named George Henry Luce in 1835. These are guys who were friends with the woman who would later call himself George Eliot. Um, and become a famous novelist who who uh, became um, George Henry Luce's consort. They had the most of the biggest scandalist out of wedlock marriage of the 19th century. And John Stuart Mill became what uh, the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy calls the most important scientific thinker or the, or the most important philosopher philosopher of the 19th century. Well, they were sitting around pondering something that had been around for about 50 years. It was this new stuff called chemistry. And they were pondering the fact that if you take a bell jar filled with a gas, oxygen, just a standard gas, and you combine it with a bell jar full of just another standard gas, hydrogen, that had been discovered in the last 50 years, and you went according to Aristotle's rules of logic, when you add, and to the standard rules of arithmetic, the kind of rules that are used in equations, if you add one bell jar of gas to another bell jar of gas, what should you get? One plus one equals two. Twice as much gas, right? Yeah. Um, enough gas to fill a two-bell jar-sized bell jar. Size <laughs> right. bell jar. Um, now, let's add a little heat, Kelly. Let's strike a match and add a little heat. Now, adding a little heat to two bell jars worth of gas should produce what? Twice as much heated gas, right? I mean, Aristotle said, once you understand the rules of elements, those rules will tell you exactly what is going to happen with those elements when they get together for the rest of, human, for the, rest of the life of the universe. Um, so you should just get a little heat in, the, in your gas. 
Uh, but no, you put your match in, guess what happens? Two radically different things. There's an explosion. Huh? <laughs> Heating? Just putting a little heat into two gases makes an explosion? That's not the elementary laws being able to describe what happens next, because there's no relationship between the laws of two gases and an explosion. And another thing happens, this weird, wobbly form of matter comes out, and it's peculiar. You can put your finger in and touch it, but you can put your finger through it. Um, and if you're male and it slides off your lab table and onto your pants, you won't want to stand up for 15 minutes because you'll be very embarrassed. It will soak in your pants and give you a most embarrassing-looking stain. <laughs> um, it's called, it's, it's a liquid. It's called water. It cannot predict the properties of a liquid and an explosion, by adding the properties of two gases to each other. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, all, it sounds like alchemy. It's like crazy, right? It's like oh, It is like crazy. It's a surprise, which yeah. is what this universe is full of at every level. And what, what John Stuart Mill and George Henry Luce realize is, this is not something our math can comprehend. Mm. It's not something our math can predict. And they laid down a challenge. They basically says science said science is not science until it can come up with a form of math that can predict that explosion and that can predict um, that liquid, that can predict the supersized surprise. Well, guess what? That was 177 years ago. And our math is still not capable of predicting the supersized surprise, at least not the math of equations, which is all based on Aristotelian logic. Um, but we have computers, and they've gone back to pictures, very kinds of things that Kepler and Galileo used to do all of their calculations. Um, and pictures can do amazing things. And when you run a tiny little equation that actually is, it can be, when you run a simple little rule, and that simple little rule is, is the rule of Mandelbrot set, and it is gathered together around a common core. That's rule number one. Then once you've gathered together around a common core, break out, rebel, bust out, get free. Um, and then gather together around the common core again. Well, when you gather things together around a common core, they make a circle. And when you have things bust out, they make little circles outside the circle, um, on the outer periphery of the circle. And then uh, they consolidate the circles. And then their elements butt out and rebel. And you get these things called fractals. And they're some of the gorgeous, astonishing things in the world. And they do begin to hint at an element of supersized surprise. Because there's no way, starting with those simple rules, that you and I would ever be able to predict those incredibly gorgeous forms if we had never seen a fractal before in our lives. Yeah. And Stephen Wolfram is taking his computers and he's using these things called axioms, simple rules. And he's changing the axioms constantly and then letting the computer figure out the implications of those simple rules. And the computer, as I said, can do more repetitions um, then all the all the mathematicians in history can do them in one second to figure out what the implications of those simple rules may be. And in the process, they derive entire new universes. And they derive, uh, Stephen Wolfram has worked his way through millions of axioms. Well, it took the Western, it took mathematicians in the West something like 2,300 years, 2,200 mm. years, to be able just to change one axiom, one simple rule in, in uh, standard geometry. But now the computers are doing it. You can challenge rules by the thousands in a day. Um, so and you can do it in form that produce pictures, and pictures will show you where the, where the supersized surprises are, where the absolutely unbelievable shocks 
are. And, and this is a universe of unbelievable shock. Until we get to understand that with our science and be able to predict it, science isn't science yet. Yeah, and it, so it seems like there is this uh, speeding up of evolution in that way. And and my concern always is, though, is that, you know, we have this technology and we're, we're using computers to, to, to use repetition to, to find things and to discover new things. But you know what? We're still humans and we have this reptilian brain. <laughs> oh, yes, we certainly do. And, we so, and, you know, and that's where I get the fear factor going. It's like my reptilian brain kicks in and goes, rut row. <laughs> Uh, look, you know, we just went through an election. There's a major, major change in the balance of powers um, geopolitically um, happening. And, you know, my field is mass behavior from the mass behavior of quarks to the mass behavior of human beings. So I've spent a lot of time in geopolitics. I appear commenting on it on Iranian television and on Saudi television. And, and we all know what the score is. The Chinese are becoming very powerful very fast. There, but what we don't know is there's a secret war going on between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran in the Middle East. The, the Syrian rebellion is not a rebellion. The Syrian democratic uprising may be partially a democratic uprising, but it's, it, it is a proxy army of, of the Saudis, um, those who are doing the uprising, the, the rebels, against a, uh, a proxy of the Iranians, um, Assad. Who Bashir Assad is, uh, for all practical purposes, an Iranian. He's not an Iranian puppet, but he's a very, very, very close Iranian ally. Uh, the secret war is going on right under our nose, and it's going on in a very, in a very dangerous way. Because in the same way that in World War One there were these huge alliances, and this little trivial incident happened, a prince nobody had heard of was shot by a, a nationalist from a nationality nobody had ever heard of, and it should have produced zero. These giant schemes of alliances, and and one power felt compelled to get in, then it's all its allies had to get in, then all the allies of the other power had to get in, and we ended up with the biggest war in history up to that time. Well, we're poised for the same kind of thing because the um, Russians feel that they are engaged in a military alliance with the Iranians, the Syrians themselves, and the Chinese, and that's an alliance that would mm. be forced into a war if things got out of hand. Meanwhile, we have NATO. That's another giant alliance that could be forced into war if things are out of hand. And at the very moment that this is happening in the Middle East, China is feeling its oats. Um, it is taking advantage of the incredible navy that it has been building up for a long time, and it's taking advantage of the fact that it has the world's largest army, and it is threatening Japan over a set of islands in the South China Sea. And it's sponsoring a series of state-sponsored demonstrations that have turned to riots against the Japanese. These uh, And people in the street, when they are stopped and asked their opinion, say our, our leaders are not doing what they need to do in order to gain justice for us. They must make war on Japan. Hmm. Well, that's, those are the seeds of a next world war. And, of course, if we had Mitten power, thank God we don't. If he stumbled as badly... Um, in international affairs, as he did over his statements about the British Olympics, we'd be in serious trouble. The war would be upon us any minute. Well, let us hope that Barack Obama is able to handle us in this difficult circumstance, and let us hope that someday the news tells us the truth and lets us know about the secret war between the Syrians and the Saudis, because that is a war that will affect your life and mine if it gets out of hand. Hmm. Yeah, so, so there is something about 
um, uh, having uh, <laughs> having a leader of what they call the free world uh, who's uh, more level-headed, who's not triggered by the need to uh, have power over and and wants to uh, you know have 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 a quieter and more measured approach to things, and 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 that's that's true for today and. You know, but I, I'm just I'm so curious about you, Howard, because you you're you're a person who can think in these big, big abstract ways and really like, you know, practically leave the leave the universe and look at the universe and, and see this big, big picture that and that's always what you write about. It's one of my favorite things because I love being there, too. And then you can drill down and talk about the geopolitics of this planet and what's going on right now. And. And for you as a citizen of this planet, um, you know, what do you think, what do you feel your, your job is? Is it to get inside the, the mix and the mess of, of the day-to-day struggle? Or is it to, to depart and to do the big picture or a little of both? I mean, how do you, how do you keep peace within yourself and feel that you're, you're, you know, you're part of the, the whole, uh, you know, evolution of the planet yourself and that you're, you know, you're doing your part as a member of, of, uh, you know, this, this interesting scheme of things. Well, that's a great question. And, and there's a sort of three part answer. If I remember all of the parts uh, that you just made me think of. And one of them is I've been an activist politically since I was 16 years old. And, uh, I was the head of the political action committee at the Unitarian Youth Group in my hometown, Buffalo, New York, even though I'm Jewish and an atheist. And, um, and then I worked for, wrote position papers for political candidates when I was 18 and 19 years old, and all of those candidates won. Um, and so I've been very active. You know that I started an anti-censorship movement in the 1980s and, and went toe-to-toe with Tipper Gore and the religious right, which was not an easy thing to do. They tried to kill my career. Who cares? You do what's right, period. Um, and I, I put Buzz Aldrin together with the 11th president of India because I wanted to get to Obama. And this seemed the best way to do it, and they both wanted to get to Obama, too. Um, I would love to be able to talk with the people who are making critical decisions of our time in the hope that something that I see that they don't would be of value to them. Um, and it is very likely, uh, I think, that I might see something that they might miss because I'm full-time on this thinking business and they have to spend a lot of time in action. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another obligation and, and you know, when I was 10 years old, I was totally unwanted by any of my peers in Buffalo, New York and even my parents didn't seem to want, <laughs> to want me. So, and then suddenly at the age of 10, I opened a book and discovered two guys who, who didn't reject me. And their names were Galileo and Anton von Willenhoek. And I've been in microbiology and theoretical physics ever since. And never have these guys rejected me. And you know why they didn't reject me? They didn't have a choice. They were dead. <laughs> 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 but they reached out over a gulf of 300 years. And they saved my life, Kelly, when I was 10. They saved me. Yeah. And my job... It's as awful as this sounds, my job is to reach out 300 years to save the next kid. Mm. So those are my obligations. New ways of seeing leads to new ways of being. I have to offer people new perceptual platforms that allow them to behave and change the world in brand new ways. Um, I would love to be able to get close once again to the leaders who are making the critical decisions of our time. That may never happen in my lifetime again. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, my, my ultimate obligation is to that kid 
yeah. um, 300 years from now. Wow, we desperately need a way to see things. That's beautiful, Howard. Really beautiful. And, and I'm also curious on another personal note here, just because I know how like my dad structured his life in order to protect his thinking and writing time. And, and, and I'm in a place in my life right now where I see that, you know, uh, I understand what my job is becoming now. And I am a thinker also and a communicator. And, um, and, and yet there's a part of me that is confused about how to, how to protect my time, my, my precious creative time and my artistic time. And, and that, you know, I can't be the social butterfly I always want to be and, and all of that kind of stuff. So how do you, how do you structure your writing time and your thinking time? Um, do you immerse yourself for a few months and then come back out? Or do you, do you have to spend a couple hours immersed and then come and connect with people? Because I know you're a social person too, even though you're an introverted scientist and all of that. I'm just curious about how you, how do you balance your kind of thinking life with the world out there? Well, it's, a, it's an extremely good question. I, um, well, I have to sleep in two shifts, two four-hour shifts, because you know, I had an illness for 15 years and kept me in bed. So I had to learn how to listen to my body's rhythms and then go with them. Um, but I basically, when I the first time at, uh, in the morning, I have my meeting, I go over everything that needs to be done and have my meeting with my assistant. I go back to sleep again. When I get up, and get, I, I take a... Um, uh, I, and I do a lot of exercises in the morning, Kelly. A few months ago, I got up to 220 push-ups all in a row without stopping, which wow. is ridiculous for a man who's almost 70 <laughs> That's years old. Awesome. Um, so, because staying in good shape means everything, it, it keeps your brain alive. Um, when I when I get up the second time after I take all my pills and put on all my clothes, I I take a two-mile walk through the park with my Kindle, reading books out loud to me, so that I can do my reading. Um, be active, see things, see people, and I've got my tiny camera. And I, I had my first gallery show of my photos two years ago at Art Basel in Florida, which is the most competitive art festival in North America. So I'm doing all multitasking in the park, and when I land at the place where I work, which is a cafe called the Tea Lounge here in Brooklyn, for the first hours, I am not allowed to do anything but work. Period. I put on my headset, I listen to Pandora or to Spotify. I will not let, I have tons of friends in there. I will not let a single soul interrupt me. <laughs> I start with the stupid stuff, the easy stuff. I just quickly go through email to see what email there might be that's important, but I don't look at it yet unless there's something really urgent because email can distract you. And then it's down to work. And the, and, and if work consists, when I'm writing a book, work consists of sitting there, writing and researching like a maniac. Um, and and P, I'm the most, I'm the nastiest, rudest person in the world if somebody tries to interrupt me. But they know that. So, um, and um, in other words, I protect that time. Mm -hmm. And if I've already got a book out, then my job is to promote, to promote the book. It says in the Genius of the Beast, if you have ideas that you think are going to benefit humanity and you do not promote them. You are committing a sin because you're robbing humanity of something that could have been of value. So you have to learn to be a salesman and a promoter. And this is very difficult when you're the author and the, the thinker. But nonetheless, uh, once a book is out, um, I have to spend six months just working to drive that book home um, before I can start working on, on the next book. Hmm. But it's so it's a matter of ritual. It's a matter of setting up a daily routine. It's a matter of being as persistent as a photon. I mean, persistence is so basic to this cosmos. A photon, a, a uh, particle of light, a wave particle of light, 
repeats its basic process, its tiny little twizzle, 157 trillion times in one second. <laughs> Talk about repetition. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so the, the so the secret is build your twizzle. That's your daily routine. Yes. And and then adhere to it religiously. Yeah. Yeah, that was my dad, man. He was committed to writing. He sat down, you know, and I talked to all of this sort of prolific people, and it's that. They, they've got a routine. If it's 9 a.m. in the seat, their butt in the seat and the computer on and the, and everything else turned off but the pages, then, you know, and that's what it is. And, and I'm, and I'm trying to find my rhythm now. So this is, this is very inspiring. And, uh, and just a few weeks ago, I wrote, you know, my new mantra is repetition, repetition, repetition. And I love that. Right. Persistent as a photo. Photon. <laughs> That's going right. to be go on my like every uh, flat surface in my house now, so I can look around and go, oh yeah, that's right, persistent as a photon. And and oh, I love and I and I love what you said too that your job is to you know put your put your thoughts out there, and that if you don't do that, it's it's a sin. I mean, that is the definition of sin. And and I I, I really that's that's very inspiring and and, and very moving to me. Well, there's t- one tiny little detail that you alluded to before, and it's something you have to know about the creative process. When you sit your seat in the your, your butt in the seat, in order to write, um, at first you're going to think you have absolutely nothing to write. Um, you're also going to think that you have no idea how you've ever written anything in your life because you're absolutely <laughs> certain you can't write today. Yes. Do not let that stop you. Even if you have to write nonsense poems. Um, the first 10 minutes that you're there, the nonsense poems will warm up your brain. Um, and something will come spilling out of you. And on most days, by the end of the day, you'll wonder, where the hell did that come from? Mm. Um, but, but unless you force yourself to sit in that seat, even if you're absolutely positive you cannot write a word today, I don't care, Kelly. You have to sit yourself in that seat anyway. Yep. Period. Yep. Yes. 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 Well, Howard, thank you so much again for coming back on and we getting to talk even more about all these, our favorite subjects. I mean, you know, how, how good is life? We get to talk to each other about our favorite things. Right. Absolutely. You're making me smile again. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, you can find Howard Bloom. I think it's howardbloom.net, is it? That's it. Yep, PowerBloom.net. And and how is your um, bagel theory thing going on YouTube? How many hits do oh you have my now? God. It's seven hundred and forty-eight thousand hits, Kelly. It's That's almost awesome. three quarters of a million hits. Are you getting some attention? Are you getting some attention from the um, the cosmologists around this? Um, I just got an email from Marty Hofford today. Marty Hofford is a, um, a physicist at NYU whose work has been in science and the Scientific American and stuff like that. And he says the book is, is fascinating and it's a tour de force and stuff like that. It's, but no physicists will go out on a limb uh, with this, uh-huh. um, with, the, with the big bagel. They're all afraid. Yeah. Um, they're afraid that if they embraced it, they would look silly. Right. Because, I, you know, I've worked without credentials all of my life. I've worked outside of the establishment in every conceivable way. Yes. So I don't have the usual Harvard and Oxford <laughs> <laughs> yes. stuff. Yes. <laughs> Oh, but you have all the other good stuff, Howard. Well, yeah, thank you, dearest. Thank you so much for everything. Everyone, you can uh, follow Howard on Twitter. He's Howard X Bloom and find him at howardbloom.net. And, uh, uh, you know, we shall talk in a few months and uh, see how the world is evolving uh, while we're all uh, traipsing we'll along doing our work. 
And we'll see how your writing is coming. Ah, yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Howard, have a beautiful weekend, and I'm glad you're uh, safe and uh, dry and have power. Well, have a great night, Kelly. Thank you, darling. Bye. So that was the great Howard Bloom. Always, just, you know, I'm always gushing about him because it's just, he's just this amazing mind. It just, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It makes me, uh, he just inspires me so much to be a big thinker, to sit down and do the work, to not be afraid to have ideas that seem crazy and outside the box, um, to not love all sides of all things uh, because he's willing to walk everywhere and he doesn't toe the line anywhere, but he's a very ethical, smart, moral, visionary and uh but doesn't just uh, fall into line with uh any side you know here's a man who could talk about capitalism and ecology and progressive politics and uh and the persistence of protons <laughs> it's pretty fascinating it's pretty fantastic uh so i uh what else do we want to say here um thank you all so much for being here um, if you want to support this, uh, this podcast, uh, you can do so at kellycarlin.com forward slash waking. There's a little PayPal button. I'd love for you to, uh, you know, give a few bucks towards us here. Uh, it costs some money here to, to do this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it is capitalism. <laughs> I do the work because I love it. And, uh, there's still, there's still, uh, things to be uh, paid for here. So, uh, always, uh, to pay for, uh, certainly Logan's gas money and, and whatever else. Um, so please support our work here. We really would appreciate that. Uh, you can find out all my other stuff, of course, at Kelly Carlin, Kelly You can follow me at Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. Come find my public page on Facebook. Um, and, uh, go check out Kevin Smith's public page today. He, every Wednesday, even though it's Thursday, he does a tribute to my dad and it makes me cry every time. He's just such a sweetheart. And as you know, Kevin runs, uh, the Smodcast. Uh, Smodcast would not be possible without Kevin Smith. So, um, you know, I always want to just put, take my hat off to Kevin and all the work he does and, and thank him dearly for supporting this podcast and all the other people who do like Will Wilkins and all the people who do the graphics and, and everything. It's just, uh, just thank you so much for all your help. And, um, and so, you know, it's not quite a new day in America, but it kind of feels like a new day in America. You know, it feels like there's, I don't know, I feel hopeful. I feel like I have some faith. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that I also don't understand and can't stand in the perspective of, of something my father had introduced years ago, which was fuck hope, which is also a very freeing place to stand. Uh, but I think it's important to be able to both embrace hope and fuck hope and embrace them at the very same time. And if you can do that, your mind is really, really in a cool, cool, expanded place. So uh, have a great week. Have a great three weeks, actually. Next week, uh, we'll be replaying a show. The following week, we'll be playing another show. And then the 29th, like I said, I have Anne Lamott as a guest. I don't know who else I'll have as a guest. Uh, we shall see uh, who I come up with. And um, 
And uh, that's it, I guess. Uh, boy. Oh, also, really cool thing. We just launched my dad's new website, georgecarlin.com. Uh, go check out all that fun stuff there. And uh, we're going to go out uh, on a little song here. Uh, I'm kind of cheating today. I'm kind of playing some music I'm not supposed to. Shh, don't tell anybody. But this is a really cool album called Mood Swings. And um, this is a song called Spiritual High, State of Independence. Um, enjoy. Have a great fucking week. Sounds like a signal from you. Bring me to meet your son and I will bring you to my heart. Love like a signal
This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com. <laughs>